And please turn in your Bibles to James, the book of James chapter 1. We're working through expositionally in a series of James, and it's exciting to see God's Word unfold before our eyes. There's an insert if you want to take some notes, and I'll forewarn you that not every point is equally long, because you're going to get to the end and you'll be like, he's got another one? Don't worry. It'll all pan out in the end. And look, this first service finished on time, so we're, we're good. In the book of James, we're seeing how James continues to lay out for us that living faith has a goal for the Christian life, that living faith is different than any other kind of faith, faith that the demons have, and they believe and shudder, but it's not a saving faith. But genuine faith, real faith in Christ bears fruit. What does living faith look like? How do we cultivate that? So, from the beginning of the book, James tells us how we can distinguish it. And he then launches right into trials, when difficulties come, to count it all joy, brothers, when you face various trials. And we learned in verses 9 to 11 that an informed faith is going to bring us steadfastness. We saw that a tested faith is going to bring us maturity, and that a wise faith brings us stability. And so, as a wise teacher then, James then starts to unpack how this faith is then manifest in areas of testing and temptation, the area of our finances, how we use our money, how we use our time. James takes up those two topics and then transitions into how to distinguish between temptation and trial. They're different. Temptation is different in its source and the intention behind it. Trials have a different source and a different intention. In verse 14, we see that a person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires, and desired when, desires, when it give, is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation and our selfish, sinful desires are luring us to trap us. A fisherman isn't looking out for the best interest of that fish. He wants to lure it catch it, kill it, and eat it. That's what sinful desires and temptations are all about. Its intention is to trap us. But James warns us then not to be deceived. The deception could be that when that trial then comes, I could say God is tempting me to sin. And James says, no, God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. There's no sin in God. God has a different intention, a different purpose by bringing suffering into your life, by bringing trials into your life. He wants to build your faith. He wants to strengthen your faith, not to knock it down and destroy it. The deception, the error would be to believe, God, you're to blame. And, and tell God He's guilty of causing us to sin. And that's just not the case. So trials might be tough. Trials are confusing to us. But let me tell you about your father is where he's going. I didn't pick this as a Father's Day sermon, I, I guarantee. But there is a father theme in here, the father of lights and the father that brings us forth. He's the one that we look to who's the source of these trials. What does he want for us to gain out of them? In verses 17 and 18, we're going to see the character and the intention of the one that brings trials into our lives. He is good and He brings you the gift of life in contrast to the curse of death. Follow along as I read James 1, 16 to 18. 
do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the flowers fade and wither, but Your Word stands forever. We know that Your Word is truth, and Your Son, Jesus, prayed that we would be sanctified by it. Lord, we pray, I pray, that Your Word would go forth and return back to You, accomplishing all that You intend for us. Lord, that You would comfort those who are hurting. Lord, that You would convict those of us who are sinning. And Lord, that You would bring to us again, bring us again to Jesus, the shepherd of our souls. Lord, open our eyes to the truth of Your Word this morning, that we may be able to grow in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's just something about a person who's a good gift giver. We give gifts all the time. Everybody gives gifts, but there are some gift givers that are really good. You know what makes one really good? One of the best gift givers that I know of was Bob Albright. He was one of our founding elders of our church, and he went to be with the Lord not too many years ago, but he always had an intentionality, a thoughtfulness. He always had a little message in the gifts that he would give, and I can remember vividly so many of those gifts. He had a cycle shop, a bicycle shop, and he had roastery coffee make a special Midwest cyclery blend. So this coffee is specially made, and and he'd give it as gifts, and I remember getting that thoughtful, careful gift. He also was fond of getting uh, little funny gifts that were um, maybe reformed thoughts and words on a on a T-shirt or on a mug or or something that just just made you laugh, and you say, "Oh, that's Bob, his sense of humor." Um, he in fact, gave a gift that we keep up here in the pulpit, a very practical gift for those months when the sun is just blasting in right through here. We could have this baseball cap to shelter our eyes. Just funny but useful, practical gifts. My favorite gift from him was a T-shirt, all-black T-shirt with white lettering on it. The context is, oh, about eight years ago, the counseling organization I'm a part of was called the National Organization of Nithu- National Association of Nuthetic Counselors, NANC. And nobody understood what NANC stood for or what Nuthetic was. So we went through a name change from NANC to the Associ- Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, ACBC. Now, being the joker that uh, Bob is. He had this black T-shirt with ACBC with a little lightning bolt in between, as you can know the reference that he's making. And on the back, it has, we're on a highway to help. And it was awesome. I mean, I'd wear it all the time, and it's gotten so kind of threadbare and raggedy. But when I have a tough counseling case I know I'm heading into, I make sure to wear that T-shirt underneath whatever I'm wearing. So Bob was just thoughtful, careful, a good gift giver. When he retired, sold his bike shop, he had some more time to, to check in on us. And, and Bob never had kids of his own, but he was a father figure to so many, to me included, And I remember him asking me to go out uh, for lunch with him. 
sitting down at the restaurant, and I thought it was going to be just like any typical conversation with Bob, encouraging and everything, but he said, Nathan, I, I have something hard I want to tell you. I want to point something out, and I don't know, you know, how you'll take it, but I think you need to hear this. And he went on to, to bring some criticism, some critique in my life that I needed, but was hard to hear. And it's easy when you get criticism to say, I get stabbed in the back. He's out to get me. He's an enemy. Put up the walls. Get defensive. But I couldn't do that with him because he had already demonstrated his care, demonstrated his love for me. And he wanted me to be a better man, a better pastor to this flock. You see, when we understand the nature of our good gift giver, our Heavenly Father, when we understand who He is in His character and His treatment towards us, we can use that lens to interpret the difficult things that come our way, the suffering that comes our way, the trials that come our way, and we can grow through it. We can be encouraged in it. I want us to unpack a little bit this passage, first seeing the giver revealed to us who that giver is, what is his character, and what is the gift. It's the gift of then regeneration we're going to look at and then understand how that continues on, the gift that keeps giving. So, what do we know about this giver? What kind of giver are we talking about in verse 17? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Let me break this up in three ways. First, every good gift and every perfect gift. He could have said every good gift. He could have just said every gift. And we could have filled in the blanks that, oh, yeah, they're going to be good gifts. Oh, I guess they're perfect gifts. And not just some of them, but every one of them. James uses this repetition to say the gifts that God give are of the ultimate quality. They're the best. They're superb. They're good and perfect. Alec Montier says, in giving, God is inexhaustible. He gives everything that could be possibly needed. He gives everything, holding nothing back. In giving, He is simply beneficent. For it, in its character, everything He gives is good. And in giving, He is exactly appropriate to what is required. His gifts are perfect. Even this word good, what, is, what does it mean? It means intrinsically good, inherently good in quality, but it also has the idea wrapped into it that it is good as in useful, profitable. It, it's a good quality gift, but that gift is also good for use. You can put it into work. And this good gift is given from above, is from above. It's in the present tense. It's here and now. These good things are continually coming down. God's the ultimate giver, and it's grace, right? We didn't deserve any gift from God. What do we deserve from God? His wrath and curse as sinners. We deserve to be exiled for eternity. But everything that He does for us, He does not because of what we've earned, but as a gift. Not because of our works, but because of Christ's work on our behalf. See, Christ lived the sinless, perfect life so that the Father could then pour out all the blessings, all the good gifts on us. It's grace. 
It's all of grace. It's good. The source of these gifts is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You know, if you list out all the blessings in your life, all the good things in your life, you have to give credit to God for every single one of them. And as you give credit and glory to God, you start to get an understanding of His nature. He is the Father of lights. This term, this phrase, Father of lights, is only used in this place in the Bible, and it refers to the fact that God created light. He brought it into existence as a father brings into existence a child. He brought into existence all light. You know, there was darkness, and there was void, and there was water covering the face of the earth, and God said, let there be light. And He spoke it into existence. And that light He separated into the sun by day and the moon by night, various planets and stars and objects in the sky that give forth light. He's the father of it all, the originator of it. He puts it all together. It demonstrates He is powerful. It demonstrates He's beautiful in the way that He has made all things beautiful. And so, when we look at the splendor and might and beauty of God's creation, we start to understand a little bit more what kind of giver He is. He is a good giver. He gives good gifts, perfect gifts. They're coming from this wonderful Creator. And with Him, there's no variation or shadow due to change. Variation and shadow due to change. These are astrological terms, astronomical, not astrological. It has to do with the stars and the planets, the lights in the sky. And these words deal with how they change. One commentator said, both these words, no variation and shadow due to change, both these words have to do with the variations which heavenly bodies show, the variation in the length of day and night, the apparent variation in the course of the sun, the phases of waxing and waning of the moon, the different brilliances at different times of the stars and the planets, variability is characteristic of all created things. God's the creator of lights in heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But He Himself doesn't vary. He doesn't change. He doesn't shift. Every single created thing varies and changes. The law of entropy says it's all breaking down. God is above and beyond that. He's not affected by that. So, He is changeless. the doctrinal word that describes this character of God is His immutability, immutability. He's not able to change. And that's a good thing for us. That's an amazing and wonderful thing for us. It's constantly laid out for us throughout Scripture, and it's included in the answer to one of the questions in our Westminster Shorter Catechism, asking, what is God? And our catechism says, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. He is spirit. God is a spirit, and He is infinite, He's eternal, and unchangeable. In all of these aspects, in His power, wisdom, might, in His justice, goodness, and truth, He is perfect in all of those things, but He doesn't change. He doesn't get better or worse. He doesn't have good days and bad days. You know, you get me on a day where I haven't had a lot of sleep, I'm going to be grumpy. You get me on a day when I've had more sleep, you got a better chance that I wouldn't be that way. God has no variation 
or shadow due to change. He's consistent. He's unchangeable. He stays the same. This is awesome for us. Let me try and illustrate by a, a section in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. Malachi is preaching a message to wayward Israel, actually Judah at the time, who had walked away from God, who was misusing and misworshipping uh, God in, in wrong ways. And they were becoming more like the world around them than like God's people. And in Malachi 2, it says, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. They're profaning God. They're working against God. And so what should they expect? His wrath and curse. They should see his judgment come. But God had made provision from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell into sin that he would send a redeemer. And then a code of sacrifices to point to that redeemer, Jesus, who was to come, that would help them to trust in the promised Messiah. And they would perform these sacrifices and rituals because God commanded to do them. And when they did them for His glory out of faith, then God forgave them. God removed their transgressions from them. God cleansed them and purified them. Well, in the third chapter of Malachi, it says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old as in former years. You can count on God being faithful as He was back then when you come in repentance and faith towards Him and bring these sacrifices right. And He follows up, Malachi does, by saying, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right? It's, it's not an abstract theological data point that God is immutable, that He is in His non-communicable attribute of essence immutable. That's too theologically abstract. For Malachi and the people of God, your salvation is dependent on Him not changing. And praise God, He doesn't. He keeps His promises. He sticks with us. With God, the Father of lights, there's no variation or shadow of chains. James means that when we experience what seem to be cloudy days, dark days, difficult times, struggle, that we shouldn't look on those struggles as God has changed. He's against me. He's not for me. No, God has not changed. He is still in His essential nature, good towards us. His nature and purpose towards His children, steady. They don't, he doesn't flip-flop. You need to be careful when you're in the midst of those struggles and difficulties to interpret those difficulties through the lens of His character. He's a good God. He's a wise God. He's a loving God. We know that to be true, so let your emotions step in line with that because we're all over the map, aren't we? When we face various trials, difficulties, it's easy for us to blame God, to turn on God. What He wants to do is establish, don't be deceived. I'm not tempting you to evil. I don't have any sin in me. Our God is a Father of lights who gives good gifts. You can trust Him even when it seems like these circumstances are rough. We got to go to the truth of God's Word to inform us about the circumstances of our life, or we're going to be tossed to and fro. 
we sing these truths to make them stick in our minds. A mighty fortress is our God. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting Thou art God, to endless years the same. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be Thou our guard while troubles last, and our eternal home. Of the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread His praise from shore to shore, how He loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. It's easy to feel like we're not being loved by God. Know that God's Word is true. He does not change. Know this about the good giver. He gives you a gift that is unsurpassed, and that is the gift of regeneration. Verse 18 spells this out for us. Look at it. Verse 18, of His own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth. You know, sometimes it's hard to see uh, the book of James in its totality as being grace-centered, as being um, not just about all the things you have to do to be holy and the things you have to be active in and the way you should live your life. But here in this verse, this is the foundation for all of the commands that James is going to give. This is the grace foundation, the gospel foundation of His own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, the grounds of this new birth bringing us forth is of His own will. The means of this new birth is by the word of truth. Now, sometimes in English we might see this phrase, brought forth, and we might think um, if you grab a child by the hand, you can bring them forth like you're leading them somewhere. But in the Greek, this phrase, brought forth, is from a word that's very clearly about giving birth, the birthing process. This is about regeneration. This is about the Father of believers, this Father of lights who spoke all of creation into existence and the very lights in the skies is the Father of life who speaks life to those in Christ, to dead people in our trespasses and sins, and He says, come forth, come alive. And by His Holy Spirit, He makes us alive together with Christ. Now, it's easy for us in our life experience. Maybe you remember when you were running away from God, you didn't have any time for God, and then somebody started to introduce you about the truth of God, and you thought, well, that's starting to make sense, and you believed on Christ, and you had a new life, a different life, a changed life. And you could be led to believe because of your experience I believed in Jesus, and now I have a new life. But we read in this passage and throughout Scripture that God gives you new life, and He opens your eyes to believe on Him. It's of His own will. What does that mean? Of His own will, He brought us forth. Uh, this word speaks of a way that um, you could literally transi- translate it, Having made his decision, God decided to regenerate you. You were in the mind of God, his decision, before you ever had him as an active thought on your part. 
This puts reg- regeneration as God's plan before it was ever in our mind. And this doctrine is read throughout the Bible, election, predestination, foreordination, God's sovereignty in our salvation, and we see it from cover to cover. And as sometimes our, our first reaction to this can really be, but wait a second, and, and we have different arguments, and, and that's usually a journey for most of us, that we, we kind of resist that God's in control over this area of our lives. But I want to encourage you, listen to Scripture on this. Just, just read the Word of God and, and hear what He says in Ephesians 1, verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as th- sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of of His will. It was of His own will. It's God's plan. And graciously, that's the way He works it out because if we stuck with our plan, we'd never choose God. We'd never come to Christ. But the beauty of God's work, working His own will, we find it throughout Scripture. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 20, helps us to see how God worked in order to regenerate us. Uh, Before that, it's describing how man fell into sin and we fell in that first transgression of Adam and Eve. It brings misery. It brings death. It brings pain. Everything that is bad in this world is because of sin. And so, what did God do about that? Question 20 says, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? a resounding no, although they didn't put that in the answer, it starts off with God having out of His mere good pleasure, elected from all eternity, elected some from everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation through a Redeemer. Whose idea was this? It was out of God's mere good pleasure. You didn't earn it. You didn't warrant it. God didn't look through the corridors of time and say, oh, Nathan's going to believe on me. I'm going to choose him ahead of time, ordain him ahead of time. No, it was all in God's grace that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a truth that we should learn to love and to embrace, that it's out of His will He brought us forth. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Boy, it's all of grace that He brought us forth. This is bringing us out of our dead state into a live state. He makes us His sons and His daughters. He gives birth to us. We can cry out, Abba, Father, because we are His. This is the greatest gift that is imaginable. The source of this gift is in the mind of God. It's in His will, out of His mere good pleasure. The means that He works that in us, borns us again, is what? The Word of Truth. The means of new birth is the word of truth. It's the word or the message that's marked by or characterized by truth. It's a message which is true, but it's a message that proclaims truth as well. 
It's directly compared to the gospel in Colossians 1.5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel. They're just made to be synonyms by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1. In Ephesians 1.13, he says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. You see, we need to be diligent to present ourselves, as, for, as uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Paul talks about the message, the word of truth, that it is the preaching of this gospel that changes our lives, that is the good news. How are they to hear if they don't have preaching? How will they preach unless they are sent, Paul writes in Romans 10. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. It's said that St. Francis of Assisi said, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, I think I understand the sentiment to that. I think that fits well with what James 2.14 says, you say you have faith, um, I'll show you my faith by my works. Like, if you are a believer, it should, you should live it out. So, living out the gospel is living a life that would be honoring to God and pleasing to Him. But living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel are both necessary. You can't just live the gospel and not speak the word of truth. It's the word of the cross. It's the message of the cross that brings salvation. We need to be, yes, living out the gospel in our lives. Please don't hear me wrong. Live out the truth of God's word in the way that you behave. But just living the Word of God needs to be accompanied by the proclamation of the Word of truth. That's what borns us again. That's what regenerates people. And so, we are wrap, wrap, driving into this conclusion. What is this all about? Why of His own will has He brought us forth? And why has He used the Word of truth? Well, it's so that we could be firstfruits. Look at that last part of verse 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Why does He save you? Why are you born again? What are you supposed to do now? You're supposed to be a first fruits of His create creatures. It's a figure of speech, a, a kind of first fruits. Well, it refers back to the Jewish law that the firstborn of men, of cattle, the first growth of fruits and grain should be consecrated to the Lord. The point of the illustration is that, is that Christians who, who have been born again are like first fruits and they should be consecrated to God. Alec Montier again says there's, there's three ideas found in this, in this focus of fruit, first fruit offering. First is that out of all that belong to the Lord, this was specially His. This is going to be a, a special devoted sacrifice. In the temple sacrificial system, uh, a lot of the sacrifices were eaten by the priests and the people, and it became part of the food. But this, the first fruits, were dedicated strictly to God. Secondly, the first fruits had to be the best, and they were set apart as holy to the Lord. This is the best offering. 
This is the best of what you have to offer. And thirdly, the offering of first fruits was an annual reminder that the Lord keeps His promises to His people. He rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. Give an offering to Him. He rescued you from sin and misery. Bring your life now as an offering of first fruits to the Lord. So, James reminding us as his readers to remember and preach the gospel to ourselves, the gospel of grace that's out of His will that He saves us. It's the greatest gift that we've been given, new life in Him. And when we hear God's commands then, when, when James takes us to, okay, now this is how we should live, this is what your real faith looks like, we can go back to this foundation. You've been born again. You've been given new life, and now you live holy lives out of that reality of what God has made you. So, he re- preaches a regeneration by God- grace that's intending to lead us to be holy. Some think that James is teaching law and no gospel. It's not true. Here's the gospel foundation, James 1.18. Don't forget it. But he's going to go from there to talk about the gospel implications for our lives. How do we look different? Some accuse James of just talking about works and not talking about faith. No, faith is built into how we are born again by the gift of faith that he gives us. And he doesn't disagree with Paul in his theology. He fits right in with what Paul says in Philippians 2, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You specially belong to the Lord. He's your Father. And as His Father, you want to glorify Him with your life. You want to live your life for Him. We should be holy. We should be set apart. We should be dedicated for the Lord in our lives because He's a good and faithful giver. Let's pray. Father, we're glad that we can even call You Father. And Lord Jesus, You've taught us to pray even our Father who art in heaven. And so, Lord, we uh, acknowledge that it's all of Your grace that we have been adopted into Your family and been made Your own. And I pray, Lord, as we uh, just take in and are challenged by the commands, by the principles, by the imperatives of the book of James, Lord, that we would continue to remember the gospel foundation that You, the good giver of every good and perfect gift, have made us alive in Christ. Lord, we want to glorify You with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 561. We'll stand and sing verses 1 and 2 of, Lord, speak to me that I may gain as the elders prepare the table.